From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, like masks and gowns, was in short supply at the beginning of the pandemic. Does Colorado have enough for the fall? Then, Rick Stevens was on his way to a high school football game in 1970 when the plane he was on crashed. Many of his teammates and his coaches died. Now 72, he's bicycling in their memory. And marking 50 years of preserving Denver history. But what do the next 50 hold? You know, there's a lot of stories that just haven't been um, well recognized or told that are sort of undiscovered. And so we're hoping the community will really help us identify those places, the places that we collectively uh, want to tell our stories and that we find meaning in and that remind us that we're home. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Will. If there's one thing we've heard a lot about during the pandemic, it's personal protective equipment, which you probably also know by its acronym. We are um, doing everything we can to acquire more PPE. We were buying uh, high-quality PPE for healthcare workers. We were taking samplings from PPE that will be arriving or has arrived at DIA. Having enough PPE, like masks, for healthcare workers was a big concern at the beginning of the pandemic. We're going to take a closer look now with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. It was March of 2020, and Colorado was desperate for things like masks, face shields, and gowns. We had demand globally exceeding supply. We had no federal strategy to address this. Each state was left to their own devices. Each state was bidding against each other. Suddenly, Colorado was doing some weird stuff, unprecedented stuff. Kevin Klein heads up emergency management for the state. You know, we're making late night deals with a friend of a friend in China type things. who has got a factory there. We're setting up escrow agreements, things that we just normally would never do. And hospital systems started making PPE from scratch. Centura Health set up a makeshift factory at corporate headquarters south of Denver. It tapped its workers to make plastic gowns, and that included a few doctors and nurses who'd stopped doing elective surgeries because of the pandemic. Centura's Joe Maleka. And that was people that were cutting plastic sealing it with these special sealers that I think were used in book bindery. Months later, it still feels a bit like the 1918 pandemic. Dr. Ricky Dollywall, an emergency physician in Metro Denver, says they're reusing PPE to conserve it, just like they did back in the spring. Normally with PPE, the way that you use N95 masks in a non-COVID era would be a one-time use for one patient for the day, where You put it on, see the patient, take it off, maybe use it again uh, later in the day. Right now, what we're doing is we're using 
one N95 mask for multiple patients. The lack of N95s, the gold standard for protection, is part of a bigger problem, the supply chain. Emergency manager Kevin Klein says companies, especially smaller ones, are wary of boosting production for medical equipment. You know, like an independent factory, they don't want to get stuck investing in a lot of manufacturing capacity and then a vaccine comes out in three months and then all of a sudden the demand drops off. Meanwhile, hospital systems are trying to take advantage of a lull in the number of patients to get a handle on supplies. One system, Health One, has designated so-called PPE czars at each of its facilities. Janet Garrett and her colleague tag team at Skyridge Medical Center. We are on call 24-7, and so we get calls at all hours of the night. Skyridge has the advantage of being part of a larger hospital system, which has warehouses across the country. Those facilities feed local warehouses, which feed each hospital. They are always telling us what's in stock, and they are anticipating shortages or demands on specific areas of PPE. Julie Lomborg is with the Colorado Hospital Association. The group represents over 100 hospitals and hospital systems around the state. It checks in weekly with facilities about PPE. Lomborg says at the height of the pandemic, lots of hospitals were short on PPE. Today, most say they have enough for the near future. But I don't think there's a lot of confidence that we have enough should we hit a significant surge. And I don't think we have a lot of confidence at the moment in the supply chain if we hit a significant surge. And it's exactly that kind of surge some physicians are warning is on the way. Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. And Andrea is here now. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Avery. This paints a pretty doom and gloom picture of the state's ability to maintain enough medical supplies if the virus continues to spread more in the state. Is anyone out there optimistic that Colorado will get through without running out of critical PPE? Yeah, definitely. There are people who are optimistic. I've been speaking fairly regularly with Dr. Dylan Leuten. He's an emergency physician at Swedish Medical Center in Englewood. When we spoke in March, he was confident that Colorado would get through the predicted spike in infections without ICUs being overrun. And he was right, though a few hospital ICUs did have some pretty challenging times. In any case, Dr. Leuten continues to be optimistic about Colorado's ability to weather another spike in COVID-19, and in particular to maintain enough PPE. We've had an opportunity to, to ramp up and, and mobilize resources. Our supply chains are more robust than they were in the, in the springtime. And we understand that much better how to manage our burn rate um, at sustainable levels. Leuten says Swedish is lucky. It's part of a large nationwide hospital system, and it has a strong supply chain and can share PPE with hospitals in different states. We heard earlier from a doctor concerned about the reuse of N95 masks, and Leuten says that's true. Hospitals are reusing those masks. But he says the processes they're using to clean them, like UV light, are effective. And Leuten says what's really helped to keep the virus from spreading at hospitals and elsewhere are ordinary surgical masks. The universal, you know, wearing of surgical masks, not N95s, but surgical masks essentially resulted in zero 
provider to provider transmission and patient to provider transmission. And those surgical masks have become easy for hospitals like Swedish to get a hold of. Lloyden says, of course, in high-risk environments, doctors and nurses still need to use N95s. And Andrea, you've heard that nursing homes are worried about supplies. Of course, nursing homes are where some of the biggest outbreaks were early on. Yet this has been a really new world for nursing homes. Residents in these facilities are among the most vulnerable. So it's critical that workers there and the residents are protected. Doug Farmer is the head of the Colorado Healthcare Association, and that represents nursing homes and assisted living providers. The nursing home doesn't usually, in normal times, doesn't usually have a need for large amounts of PPE. They have enough on hand uh, in case there's an outbreak of influenza or some other type of communicable disease, but they don't have access to the kind of PPE that they needed during uh, covid Farmer says nursing homes have adequate PPE for what they need today. The challenge in preparing for a possible outbreak is anticipating what they might need later and then finding ways to get large amounts of PPE and deal with recent price fluctuations. Right now, he says they're having an especially hard time purchasing enough exam gloves, and it might be something else a few months from now. Well, thank you, Andrea. Thanks, Avery. For the last 50 years, Historic Denver has worked to preserve the city's history. And that effort has changed a lot over the decades. You know what else is turning 50 this year? Colorado Public Radio. And that's why all year long we've been looking at the state then and now. To tell us more about how historic preservation has taken shape over the last five decades is Annie Levinsky. She's Historic Denver's executive director. Hi, Annie. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with the reason Historic Denver came to be. It had to do with the famous Molly Brown House, right? That's right. Uh, Yeah, right there in Capitol Hill. uh, The Molly Brown House had actually been used as a boarding house for decades uh, when the owner, a gentleman named Art Lysenring, knew he needed to sell it and move on. And he was concerned that as soon as he did, it would be torn down just as its neighbors had been. Uh, So he reached out to community leaders and asked for help. And a group got together that included the First Lady of Colorado at the time, Governor Love's wife, Anne Love, um, as well as folks like Ken Watson and Dana Crawford. And then Jim Judd, and they started meeting and incorporated our organization on December 11th of 1970. And the first order of business was to take out a loan from Mr. Lysenring to begin purchasing the Molly Brown House, which opened a few months later in March of 1971. And in the 1970s, there was a swell of grassroots movements from the community to preserve parts of Denver that were being threatened by urban renewal. Why do you think that there was a sudden push from the community? Well, yeah, that's exactly right. The urban renewal philosophy of the 1960s was really uh, a a bit of a demolition derby. Dozens of square blocks in downtown Denver were flattened in order to make way for some future new development that actually took many, many years to materialize. And people started to witness this demolition and to see the places that they loved going or that were important to them um, scraped to the ground. And and that really was happening nationally. Uh, But in Denver, there was a really strong voice for it. And And Historic Denver quickly became one of the largest grassroots preservation organizations in the country. So Molly Brown House was one of the earliest buildings that Historic Denver was involved with. What are some of the other major places that were preserved in the last 50 years? 
Yeah, when we look at our own organizational history, there are a few um, big standouts. One that's really near and dear to our hearts is the Ninth Street Historic Park on the Auraria campus. Auraria, of course, was one of Denver's oldest neighborhoods and by the 1960s had become an important place uh, for, culturally for the Mexican-American and Chicano populations. And uh, Historic Denver was able to help save a sample block of that neighborhood, including the Casa Mayan house. That's still a special place because the stories embodied in the, those homes from the 1870s really span an entire century of Denver history and, and our cultural heritage. And looking back on what was considered worth saving in historic Denver's past, do you feel like certain communities' histories or cultures were overlooked, or do you think that there was balance in the work? Well, you know, we are really um, proud of some of our achievements um, around helping and supporting the creation of the Five Points Cultural Historic District in the late 1990s, um, as well as a number of other places in Denver. But we certainly acknowledge that a lot of our historic landmarks represent those who had power and wealth a uh, hundred years ago uh, or 150 years ago. And so as we look to the future and increasingly over the last decade, uh, really wanting to make sure that our historic landmarks represent all of us in our community and that people from um, you know many backgrounds see themselves represented uh, because we think the value of historic places is, is expressing that sense of identity and connection. And it's really important that that be inclusive. And are there any projects going forward to hopefully expand that inclusivity? Yeah, Historic Denver for our 50th anniversary is launching what we're calling our 50 Actions for 50 Places campaign, uh, which we're just getting going now, and it'll run through 2021. But we're really going to work closely with our community to help identify what are the next 50 places that are worthy of celebration or protection or interpretation. And, you know, there's already work underway, for example, a major project in the La Alma Lincoln Park neighborhood, uh, including discussion around how to preserve the Chicano murals of the 1970s. Um, we're also heavily in partnership right now with the Black America West Museum, which we um, helped to save in the 1980s, um, but we're partnering again to help um, complete some restoration work there. Um, and then we know, you know, there's a lot of stories that just haven't been um, well recognized or told that are sort of undiscovered. And so we're hoping the community will really help us identify those places. And we recognize they won't all look like uh, the Paramount Theater or like Union Station, um, that sometimes our places of importance are more modest, um, but hold great meaning. And you mentioned the Five Points Cultural Historic District. Tell me more about that project. Yeah, it's our first uh, actually cultural historic district in Denver. And, and like I said, it was created in the late 1990s. Um, actually, I think passed in the early 2000s. Um, but it protects a number of buildings along Welton Street and in the general Five Points area that really tell the story of what is referred to as the Harlem of the West. It was really the heart of the African-American business community in Denver. A lot of jazz musicians and entertainers spent time there at the Rossonian Hotel and in other venues, in large part because they were excluded from participating and, and spending time at venues downtown, uh, where segregation um, kept them out of places like the Brown Palace Hotel or other buildings. And so uh, that district is really an important part of Denver's story and represents um, the really rich heritage that came out of Five Points. And without the protection of the historic district, a lot of those buildings might have already been lost. Uh, there's been a lot of development pressure in that area. And the acknowledgement of that history has helped to ensure that it'll be preserved and sustained, um, as is happening right now uh, at the Rosonian Hotel with the um, ownership group that is working to rehabilitate and reopen that building. 
There are cases when owners feel that preservation is not in their best interest. There was a lot of back and forth on Tom's Diner last year. The owner needed to sell the restaurant to retire, but the buyer would have demolished the building. Many in the community fought to save it, including historic Denver. In the end, the building was sold to someone who would preserve it. So it turned out to be a win-win situation. But how do you think about balancing the interests of property owners in preserving history? Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's been part of the debate for many years. But what the evidence has shown here in Denver, and and it it held true for Tom's Diner as well, is that it is possible to have win-win situations, uh, that often what is needed is just a little bit of time um, to come up with a viable option that that will work economically and that will um, also sustain something that's important to the larger community. I think a lot of times people forget or take for granted that Places like Lower Downtown were actually somewhat controversial when they were saved for the same reasons. People were concerned about what would happen to property values and and whether it would um, hinder development. Um, But like I said, the evidence has really demonstrated that to not be the case, Um, that preservation and and holding on to the places that offer meaning to our city is what sets us apart from other places in the country. It's what makes it a great place to live. People want to be in those communities and in in those historic buildings. Um, So we have a lot of great evidence there. Um, And we always at Historic Denver are looking to find that right balance and to find those win-win scenarios. Um, And and sometimes it does take a little bit of elbow grease and some, um, you know, some stress to get there. But we are proud of our record in succeeding on those. And in the last decade, with so many people moving to the state, what have you noticed about the community's attitude toward historic preservation? You know, we still see a lot of interest in our community and in, and including from people who are new to Denver and want to put down roots here and want to understand the city that they have adopted. Uh, for example, we've seen a resurgence in interest in our walking tour program and in our educational programs offered through the Molly Brown House Museum, which has really evolved its interpretation over time to help connect, you know, the issues of, of Mrs. Brown's day to our contemporary issues and social justice causes. And so we're finding a lot of renewed interest in, in younger people and as well as older uh, folks who are moving here for their retirement. Um, But we also think it's important to make sure we're telling the preservation stories because it can be easy to take for granted that some of these historic buildings have survived um, when really it did take the work of the community to ensure that they, you know, made it through economic downturns and other pressures that would have threatened them. What early challenges did historic preservationists face? Uh, Well, in the early 1970s, there was still not a lot of policy around preservation as a tool. And so often it became a a really challenging endeavor on how to create policy in our city around zoning and land use that would actually support the reuse of buildings. Um, Banks often didn't want to lend to historic preservation projects because it wasn't how uh, they were accustomed. They were used to loaning for new construction. And so it took some time to demonstrate that restoring historic places could be economically viable, and also that it was a, a an overall strategy that would be good for our city, that it would allow us to, for example, um, attract residents back into parts of the city that had lost them um, over the course of the middle of the 20th century. Now, these stories, they don't always end with a building being preserved. I'm sure that there have been plenty of losses over the years, too. Would you tell me about some of those? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, for every great win, there there unfortunately is an equally painful loss. I know some that that locals who have been here a long time really think about is the loss of the Central Bank building, which was downtown. And it was scraped purely on sort of speculative um, purposes and remained a parking lot for almost 30 years after it was demolished. So that's one that I know um, really broke a lot of hearts. Also, the Zeckendorf Plaza, which was designed by IM Pay, and it used to sit on the 16th Street Mall, where today the Sheridan Hotel is. And it 
Ian Pei, you know, went on to design the pyramid in front of the Louvre. And, and here we in Denver had one of his early uh, hyperbolic paraboloids, um, but we demolished it in the 1980s after much debate and discussion and, and preservationists really sought to save it, but ultimately uh, were not politically successful. It sounds like that one still hurts. You know, that one does still hurts. I occasionally run into folks who, you know, it gives them heartburn and they'll, they'll tell that story over and over again. Do you think it's gotten harder or easier over the decades to protect historic buildings? Because like we mentioned, there's been such an explosion in growth in the last couple of decades, which means a greater need for housing and development. Yeah, I mean, we've we've seen a lot of cyclical, uh, like a lot of industries, there's a cyclical nature to preservation where it can be harder, especially in times of growth when there's great pressure or people are in a hurry because preservation often benefits from the perspective of having time. You know, we don't see preservation as in conflict with the city's need to grow and accommodate more people. And we've seen a lot of great, for example, affordable housing projects moving into um, historic buildings in recent years because that's a great synergy between the historic preservation tax credits and the affordable housing tax credits. So we think there are ways to accommodate both. And certainly there are pros and cons uh, to preservation in an up economy and in a down economy. So uh, it, it is cyclical, but we think Denver has done a great job embracing its historic resources and recognizing that in order to be a world-class city, we have to have unique places that tell our stories. And what do you think that preservation will look like over the next few decades? Yeah, I'm hopeful that preservation will continue to be a grassroots movement. That's really how it started in the 1970s. And I think there's a real desire today to to continue to celebrate that and to even reinvest in that sense of, you know, the places that are important are not those that are deemed important by, you know, uh, men behind curtains, uh, but it's really up to the community itself to identify the places that that we collectively uh, want to tell our stories and that we find meaning in and that remind us that we're home. So I'm hopeful for that grassroots element and that younger people who are really getting into research and understanding place and the meaning of of place names and architecture uh, will continue to stay involved so that it becomes more natural. We, we would love for demolition to not be the default solution in, in situations, but for preservation and adaptive reuse to really be the first choice um, in most instances uh, when it's possible. Annie, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This was really fun, and congratulations on your 50th birthday as well. Thank you. Annie Levinsky, the executive director of Historic Denver, with a retrospective look at historic preservation over the last five decades as the organization turns 50 this year. So does CPR. And that's why all year long we're doing stories that look at our state then and now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, host of the CPR News podcast on something. And on October 15th, our podcast is hosting its first ever live virtual event. Join me and Denver's own Andrew Orvidal for an evening of stories about those awkward moments where cannabis and family overlap. We'll laugh, we'll cringe, and we'll all learn something together. Sponsored in part by the Rodman Law Group. Register at onsomething.org slash myfamily. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Fifty years ago, on a clear October day, a plane crashed near Silver Plume, Colorado. It carried the members of the Wichita State University football team on the way to a game in Utah. A Denver TV reporter described the scene. A testimony to the kind of people that were on this plane. Uh, The many 
31 people died. There were nine survivors, including 22-year-old Rick Stevens, the WSU nose guard. He is now 72 years old and will be riding a bicycle from Wichita to Colorado. Welcome, Rick. Well, I want to ask you, a football team is a tight unit. You must have fond memories of your fellow players and coaches. Could you share some of your thoughts about those who died? Certainly. Uh, the, the the team itself was uh, they're largely from Midwestern uh, states, but there were a few kids from the East Coast and so forth. Um, there, there was uh, any time you're not greatly successful, it makes it a little bit more difficult to develop those kinds of relationships uh, when you're when you're failing uh, to succeed. But uh, we, we had uh, an admirable group uh, of people. I don't. Uh, the coaching staff was uh, relatively new, and the, the uh, <laughs> effort to get the program underway and, and get it successful was a challenge. Now, tell us about what happened on the plane that day. I understand that you could tell something wasn't right before the plane started to go down. That, that's correct. The, um, as I was sitting on the uh, over over the left airplane, uh, left wing, and as we began to uh, approach the mountains, uh, I noticed that we were not gaining a great deal of altitude. Just judging from the foothills and the mine shafts and the old rusted equipment that I could see, and mostly out of curiosity, not out of great concern. Uh, I moved uh, out of my seat and went into the cockpit area and stood behind the pilots. And I could tell very quickly that there was uh, some urgent concern on their part. They had out a topographical map trying to determine if there was a way that we could uh, find uh, a low enough elevation to make it to Pass sets at I believe fourteen thousand feet. We were at about ten five. At least that's the elevation of the crash site. Um, I very was readily apparent to me that uh, things weren't right. Uh, I remember looking uh, out through the, the windshield of the plane and being able to see nothing but green, uh, which uh, was. I think at that point I became very alarmed. I returned, attempted to return to the cabin area, trying to get away from the front of the aircraft. And uh, it's when I began, uh, I felt a sharp bank to the left or right, whichever was knocked to the floor, fell to the floor. And at that point, began to feel the wings clipping uh, the tops of uh, trees. I was knocked unconscious, and the next thing that I knew, I was uh, outside of the aircraft uh, some 25 yards and uh, uh, spitting out uh, gravel and teeth and, and trying to make some sense of what had happened. But 
it was uh, it was an absolutely surreal and, and just uh, extremely difficult to comprehend at that point what had happened, although I knew that it was extremely serious. So it sounds like you were thrown from the plane in the crash. Yes, I was ejected from, and how I, how I got there, I do not know, but I did not make it back to the cabin area. And the National Transportation Safety Board found the pilots were responsible for the accident. You testified from your hospital bed for the investigation. What did they say? Or rather, what did you say? Well, it, it was my understanding that they had changed the flight plan without going through the proper procedures. As, as has been established, uh, this older airplane, some 35 to 40 years old, was five thousand pounds overweight. I assume that that's the pilot's responsibility to know what the capacity of the airplane is and what it was loaded with, and they did not apparently have that information. The other plane, there were two planes. Uh, I was on the team with the those who started uh, on, the, on the team, and the other team um, was on the black plane. Then they flew north to uh, Wyoming and then would cross the Continental Divide where it's only 7,000 feet. Uh, Our pilots, for whatever odd reason, decided they would uh, head directly into Loveland Basin and attempt to go over Loveland Pass, but uh, that wasn't possible. Uh, That's basically my understanding and what I told the NTSB. And we should say that the, of the pilots, one died in the crash and one survived. I imagine the Wichita community must have been reeling and that there were probably fewer counseling options 50 years ago. What was your emotional recovery like? It, I will say this. Um, the, there wasn't uh, the type of support uh, and awareness of uh, the emotional trauma that people go through for a variety of uh, uh, serious incidents, but we did not have uh, really anyone uh, who supported us in that in that sense in trying to make some emotional um, support available. And it's certainly unlike uh, today when that uh, when that is most likely to occur. The uh, my feeling was one of uh, not not guilt, but certainly uh, being aware that I deserved to live no more than those who died. And you tend to be certainly grateful for that, but at the same time, you regret that the uh, lives of the others were taken and yours, uh, your life goes on. And 50 years later, you're getting ready to ride your bike for 500 miles from Wichita to Colorado, along with two of your teammates' relatives. Why did you choose this way to mark the anniversary of the crash? I, th- I think it draws attention uh, to what what took place. And, and that, primarily, Avery, that's my interest, is, is keeping the memory alive of those uh, who, who lost brothers, who lost their sons, sisters, mothers, fathers. As 50 years passes and it tends to fade more and more, which is generally what happens. Uh, I, I hope just to keep the memory alive uh, for a bit longer. 
And also the the effort to there is a memorial scholarship that funds um, tuition and some support for the the survivors' children as well as those who perish their children and even grandchildren. So we'll have an opportunity to to gain uh, some support for that that scholarship, which both of my children benefited from, as well as others. And there's a roadside memorial along I-70 with about two miles east of the Eisenhower Tunnel. When you arrive in Colorado, you're planning to hike to the crash site. There's still wreckage 50 years later. You've been there several times before, but how do you think that this visit will feel different? Well, every marking 50 years have passed in your life, and you, I, uh, time is a great mystery, and, and as it passes... Uh, you want you want to make um, a difference, and I, I feel like I I have uh, the two rides that I've done prior to this one to, to the crash site. Although I will say to you, I I made it to Idaho Springs one time, and that was that I realized at that point that riding in that elevation and on those grades is probably something that I really can't do. And so we'll more than likely stop at Morrison and and drive. Uh, from that point. So that, that is, a, is a difficult question, but I, I think I, I've tried to keep this memory alive. I've, I've been, uh, I've ridden uh, on some other fundraisers for breast cancer research, Susan G. Coleman and the Alzheimer's Association. And last year I was riding with my good friend who lost his daughter to um, an eating disorder resulted in her taking her own life, and we did uh, started a ride to Winnipeg again, uh, but I wasn't able to finish that. I had an accident, and people might say, "Well, why Winnipeg?" Well, Winnipeg lies straight north of Wichita, and the predominant winds are out of out of the south. So, I, I've tried to to do some things with my life that uh, would benefit others, and mm-hmm. I feel like I've accomplished that. There's a lot to remember as you ride. Rick, thank you so much for joining us, and best of luck on your 500-mile bike ride. Well, your your, uh, your attention to this uh, event, I, I appreciate greatly. Rick Stevens survived a plane crash in Colorado 50 years ago that killed many of his teammates on the Wichita State University football team. Tomorrow, family and friends of those who died in that plane crash will honor their memory at Wichita State in a ceremony. The next day, Rick Stevens will start his cross-state ride to Colorado. Garfield County on the western slope has a large Latino population, large enough that they could help direct its political future. That is, if the parties start working to get their votes. CPR's Caitlin Kim reports. Beatriz Soto is a Democrat running for Garfield County Commissioner District 2. It's pretty obvious with COVID that our local leadership, they absolutely have blind spots. One of those blind spots, in Soto's opinion, has been not helping the Latino community, which makes up almost 30 percent of Garfield County's population and has been disproportionately affected by the coronavirus. That's part of the reason she's running. Soto lives in Glenwood Springs and has worked in environmental policy and social equity. I think the Latino community is is ready to be seen for what, what we bring and to be part of the decision making of our futures. This is an argument that's crossing party lines. At a Garfield County Republican lunch last month, Tanya Dose asked congressional candidate Lauren Boebert what she's doing to appeal to Latinos. Dose, a Republican Latina who's lived in the county her entire life, says the GOP should be doing more outreach if it's concerned about the future. 
She points out that Latinos make up over 50 percent of the students at Rifle High School. I think that's going to be a huge, huge uh, play here within our communities to do that outreach um, bilingual and let them know that their conservative values and family are what this party represents. But traditional conservative issues like taxes and school choice aren't exactly motivating young voters. Dose's 18-year-old daughter, Ashley, who is a Republican, says her generation is more focused on racial and social justice. I do think that that's the issues that drive my generation right now, and I hope the Republican Party can kind of get it together and kind of clean up their act with who we're electing. And she thinks Boebert could be key to that. Back in Glenwood Springs, Democratic commissioner candidate Soto says, win or lose, she wants her run to open doors for others. If I see myself as anything, it would be to mentor other Latinos to, 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 to take these positions, right? And, and me not be the end of all of it. To that end, part of her outreach has been to explain to Latino voters what a county commissioner does and how he or she can impact their lives. I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. Menstruation is an experience that about half the people in the world share, but talking about periods can still be awkward. The graphic novel Go With the Flow tells teenage girls' stories of friendship and normalizes periods along the way. Authors Karen Schneeman and Lily Williams joined me in July to talk about their book and how the taboo around periods has affected them personally. Lily and Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. The color red dominates your illustrations. It's striking and obviously thematic. Lily, tell me about that choice and how it contributes to the narrative of the characters. So our book is obviously about friendship and periods in high school. And some of my favorite graphic novels, like This One Summer by Mariko and Jillian Tamaki and Be Prepared by Vera Brasco were in Limited Palace. And I was really inspired by that. So when it came time to figure out the color scheme, I wanted to go with a limited color palette in red. So really honing in on the focus of the story. So let's back up. This is not actually your first comic about periods. The two of you met in college where you started a webcomic called The Mean Magenta. It's also about women and periods. Karen, what made the two of you decide to start the comic? Yeah, so Lily and I became friends almost instantaneously. Um we were sitting in class and there was an earthquake because we live in California at the time. And uh, there was a huge projector right over Lily's seat. So I just tapped her on the shoulder. I was like, hey, you might want to move. <laughs> <laughs> um, after that point, we started going and getting food together a lot of times after class. And we eventually started talking about periods. And Lily has some really difficult um, cramps and difficulties around her period. And so does one of my best friends. And so we realized, like, a lot of people don't know this stuff. And how, how can we get that messaging out there? So we decided to do the webcomic. There are a few well-known coming-of-age novels about young women. I'm sure many listeners have read Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom, or The Moon Within by Ada Salazar. What do you think is missing from literature that already exists about young women coming of age? I think that our book fills a gap just because with graphic novels, you get to visually see so many things that are funny and taboo and like you actually get to see that in the comic form which is lovely but we just need more even casual mention of menstruation in books you know you read all these books and all these characters are having periods and yet it's never mentioned and what do you think is the effect of having a taboo over something that happens to so much of the population 
Well, when you have taboo, it ends up making it so people are too ashamed. You internalize that shame the minute your period starts, and then you work your whole life to dismantle it, or you don't, and you carry that with you forever, like a backpack full of embarrassment. Um, And it's an issue that affects not only girls going to school, but incarcerated women, homeless women. Um, It affects so many people who need our help, who need us to be talking about it. And we don't study diseases and issues related to the uterus because we're too ashamed to even talk about periods. I suffer from endometriosis. It took me 14 years to get a diagnosis. It takes on average 7.5 years to get a diagnosis. And that's all because we have this shame around periods and menstruation, so we don't study it. We don't have funding for it on larger governmental levels. So shame around periods, which is, I mean, that's something that'll happen or has happened to roughly half of people. Without spoiling the plot, the book centers around a group of friends. They're all high school girls. They each have a unique period story. Plus, they deal with high school math class, crushes, track team. They write letters, petition, and make some noise about the disparity at their school. What are some other disparities that you see, Lily, about the way that periods are treated in our society? Yeah, so there was a study done in Jennifer Weiss-Wolf's amazing book, Periods Gone Public. She talks about this. There was a study done in New York where they followed women at a prison, and it turned out that they weren't given enough pads for their cycles. And in order to prove that they needed more pads for their cycles, they had to collect their used pads to prove that they needed more, which is so incredibly dehumanizing and shameful and makes you embarrassed to even be pleading, which is something you can't even control. And in that situation, we're not even factoring for the people who have horrible menstrual cramps or, um, you know, debilitatingly long and heavy periods. And also, you know, for endometriosis, we the American College of Obstetrics doesn't educate gynecologists on it. So we have a huge issue there where there's a complete lack of understanding in our healthcare providers for diseases like endometriosis, adenomyosis, fibroids, polycystic ovary syndrome. Karen, what are the disparities that come to mind for you? Well, I think going off of what Lily said, I would also add that, you know, historically the medical field has been largely male-dominated. And I think there's this shame that you're not supposed to tell men about it. You're not supposed to tell even your closest family members about it in some ways, right? Because that's a woman's issue. That's a woman's problem. And I think that's part of what feeds into the fact that there hasn't been a lot of attention given to menstrual problems or issues around reproductive health for primarily for women. Right. And I remember a time when I was supposed to run a 5K and I started my period right before the start of the race and I had to ask my brother to go get tampons for me. And he was really good about it. But I remember how embarrassing even that felt. Um, Karen, do you hope this book will also appeal to boys? We really do. Recently, we were at a book festival and there was this really cute boy that came up to us and he said, I have a question for you. I'm not sure if I should ask it. And we said, go ahead, of course, ask it. And he said, should I read this book too? Because it was for his sister. And we said, absolutely. I think Lily and I both worked really hard to keep the story interesting and the plot interesting and just to work periods in as part of normal life. Um, So we want it to be funny. We want it to be relatable to everyone, hopefully. And then everyone can get a little bit better of an understanding of what it's like to have your period. 
And the characters in this book, they all embody different aspects of your own experiences with your periods. The character Brit, for example, she struggles with period pain that looks a lot like endometriosis, like you talked about, Lily. That is something that you struggle with. Tell me a little bit about that diagnosis process, because you said it was so hard to get diagnosed. Yeah, so um, Brit Brit struggles from endometriosis, and it becomes sort of a larger problem throughout the book, and they talk about her getting help at the end of the book. But, you know, not to spoil it, there isn't a huge resolve for her. And that's because it felt disingenuous to me to give her a huge resolve. Right, she doesn't get diagnosed by the end. No, and it felt... It felt like that was honest to what happens to most women. Um, You know, most women struggle with being dismissed by their doctors, going from doctor to doctor to get a diagnosis, um, struggling to even get information. I started my period when I was 12, and it took 14 years after that for me to get a diagnosis. And we were writing the book, and I got the diagnosis towards the end of writing the book, and we had to actually rework the ending of Brit's character because even while writing her, I didn't know what was going on with her because I didn't know what was going on with myself. And so in a lot of ways, Brit's story is mine. And it's incredibly shameful. It feels like you're fighting a system built to diminish you and make you feel like you're the crazy one, especially when you're a kid and you're like, well, I guess this doctor must be right. You know, everyone else thinks I'm healthy And yet I'm bedridden, you know, three days of the month. And it got to the point where endometriosis eventually creeps outside your period and your whole entire life becomes affected. And by the time I ended up finishing the drawings for the book, I was, I had surgery in the middle of the deadline, but right before that, I was still working on it. And I was like almost bedridden every day at that point. So I had expert excision surgery, but it shouldn't have taken me 14 years of crying at the doctor and going to the ER to get that help. Now that you've had surgery, how are you doing? I'm doing a lot better. I mean, there's no cure, though, so this is going to be a struggle I have to deal with for the rest of my life. Mm. And Karen, you got your period later in your teens, a lot like how Sasha in the book starts her period in her freshman year of high school. How did starting late impact the way you thought about your period and your body? I think for me, it was something that I just kind of ignored. You know, you learn about it briefly in sex ed in about fifth grade, I think. And then I was like, well, that's not something I have to deal with yet. (laughs) So I was kind of feeling like I was the lucky one, right? And then I got to a point where I was like, I think everyone else I know has it. But it was, one again, one of those things when you're like 12, 13, 14, you may not feel comfortable even talking to it, you know, to your friends about it. So I wasn't totally sure who had it, who hadn't had it, but I felt like, you know, maybe there's something wrong with me. And so I think it's, again, just one of those things where we want to tell people, you know, there's a wide range of normal, but if there's something that's concerning you, talk about it. You know, that that's the best way to start helping yourself. And when you were an early teen like that, did you feel like you had people you could talk about it with? I definitely could. You know, my parents were very open, um, but I I definitely felt that, you know, when I had the first conversation with my mom, when I first got my period, I just felt from her reaction that, you know, as kids do, I just felt there was something like weird about talking about it. Um, So I would have loved to have a book where I could just like dive into more information, you know? Yeah. And how do you hope that this book will influence people's conversations about periods or even the way that readers think about their own bodies? 
I really hope that it just normalizes periods, talking about periods, feeling like, you know, what you're experiencing is something normal. It is something that other people are experiencing as well. I know Lily can talk about, she probably would have loved to know someone else was having a similar struggle, right? Like just to have that support from someone else who's gone through something similar. Um, I, I really just hope that people feel a little bit more comfortable knowing that it's okay to talk about it. And Lily, what about for you? I feel the same. I hope that when people read it, boys and girls, they realize that there's not just one way to menstruate. You can have so many different period experiences and that and that it's not normal to pretend it's not normal. That we have to pretend, we have to like talk about it. We have to actually address the subject. We've got to talk about it with each other. It makes the shame, you know, ease and hopefully allows people to get diagnoses that maybe they're putting off or maybe they're concerned about but haven't expressed. But mostly I just really hope that it starts conversation. Lily and Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Author and illustrator Lily Williams lives in Denver. She and Karen Schneeman wrote their graphic novel, Go With the Flow. We spoke in July. We're planting the seeds for our next gardening segment. We want your questions. It's been a weird few months. Heat, wind, snow, and smoke. How are your plants holding up? Send us your gardening challenges and questions. We'll get answers from Fatima Imad of the urban farming group Frontline Farming. Email coloradomatters at cpr.org. That's coloradomatters at cpr.org. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.